Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be with Dr. Andrew Burns in conversation. He is an associate professor of history at the University of South Carolina. We are discussing his new book, The Land is Mine, Sephardi Jews and Bible Commentary in the Renaissance, published in Philadelphia by University of Pennsylvania Press 2022. Andrew, I could not be more grateful for this honor. Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this topic? I grew up in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, and did my undergraduate degree at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and then an MPhil at Cambridge in the UK, a PhD at Penn in Philadelphia, and then had a postdoc at UCLA, followed by another one at the Villa Itati, a Harvard run Renaissance Research Institute just outside of Florence, Italy. And to take the second part of your question, as far as formative influences go, my childhood was suburban and probably fairly typical of the 1980s and early 1990s. Yet there was a fair amount of exploration in the woods and curiosity about animals and investigation into where fruits and vegetables and even food, uh, even proteins and meats came from. So I had always been curious about nature in a variety of ways. And in a long view, I think that that childhood passion for being outside and being curious about nature stimulated the research that led to this book. What are the primary themes in this book? What story does this book tell? Can you summarize the book and its message for us? Sure. The book tells several stories, and as a scholarly book, it has several goals. One goal is to get away from a persistent tendency in academic Jewish studies to present Bible commentary as timeless and insulated from the currents that informed the authors and rabbis' lives. And I was very determined to show in this book that the three protagonists, Isaac Abravanel, Abraham Saba, and Isaac Arama, may not have been farmers and ranchers themselves, but knew a lot about those activities and knew people who did them and were very well aware of trends in late medieval and Renaissance Spain and Iberia. Secondarily, it's a book about the importance of environment in general and land in particular in medieval and early modern Jewish thought. And it's an area of incredible importance to historical actors, but of considerably less importance to modern and contemporary scholars. Mostly, I suspect, because the majority of scholars who work on Jewish texts and themes from this period live either urban or suburban lives as a feature of late modernity, and so are a little bit disconnected from the kinds of preoccupations that informed a significant amount of the Jewish literature in this tradition. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, ideally, I would stimulate their curiosity to read the book, not from any mercantile or financial motivation, but because I think that the authors themselves I study are worth more attention. And I think that the stories that I chose to highlight in the book, there are five biblical episodes that I will um, state in a second, deserve more attention outside of churches and synagogues and houses of worship and might be fruitfully integrated into conversations today about land stewardship and how we are as human beings in relationship with the earth. Those stories are the Tower of Babel, the story of Cain and Abel, the theme of sabbatical and jubilee, uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Mana, and its gathering by the Israelites in the deserts of Egypt en route to the land of Israel. What can the thinkers that you examine here contribute to present debates about ecology? What is your book's contribution to environmentalism? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I state, I state pretty clearly in the book that I don't want to make an argument that these pre-modern Jewish thinkers are proto-environmentalists, that they're anticipating Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, for example. And there are writers and scholars who work on Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the, pre, the, the Abrahamic faiths, who do make those claims. And I find those claims engaging and thought-provoking, but ultimately a bit anachronistic. So while I want to shy away from saying that these three, um, two of them are rabbis, and one of them is not a rabbi, but a very learned Jewish writer of the period, I want to shy away from saying that they are environmentalists. However, I want to emphasize the importance of land in the way they understand scripture and the way they are functioning essentially as social critics about transformations in the Iberian landscape during, especially during the 15th century. And I'll add one more thing, Ari, if I may. The book doesn't get too deeply into the Kabbalistic thought of any of these figures. The most obviously Kabbalistic is Abraham Saba. But I do suggest toward the end of the book that it is impossible to think about a Jewish environmental ethic without understanding Kabbalistic and occult scientific ideas about the land itself as animated and ensouled, which is a belief clearest in the Kabbalistic part of Jewish tradition. So if my book inspires any more interest to examine that facet of Jewish thought vis-a-vis -vis environmentalism and ideas about land, I'd be very, very gratified. How do the thinkers that you examine here understand pastoralism? What meanings did they apply to pastoralism? Sure, it's a great question. And the chapter in my book where I discuss this most extensively is when I'm dealing with Cain and Abel. And a lot of attention, both popular and pious and scholarly to that story has to do with fratricide and murder and that legacy. What I show following these thinkers pretty carefully and pretty closely is that for them, for Saba and Abravanel and Arama, they were way less interested in that dimension of the story than they were in the figure of Abel as a shepherd or pastor and Cain as a farmer. So what appealed to them about Abel, in short, was a notion that he was living a more natural lifestyle. The writers I study love to underscore this adjective, natural. Cain, by contrast, as a maker of tools and the progenitor ultimately of the first urbanites, is decried as unnatural or artificial. So pastoralism for them is essentially the authentic, original human occupation, not just Jewish, note that, but also human. And elsewhere in the book, the theme of pastoralism returns in a long gloss that Abravanel writes on a proverb in the context of Abravanel's commentary on Pirkei Avot, the so-called Ethics of the Fathers, he says, Abravanel does, that Solomon, King Solomon, the purported author of Proverbs, proposes and recommends that anyone who wants to be truly independent and closest to God spiritually needs to be a pastor, not a religious functionary, but a literal pastor. And the, reason, the reasons why are several. One, it gets you away from a city, which is always perceived to be insidious and distracting and artificial and unnatural. Two, it puts you closer in touch with the rhythms of nature and the rhythms of the calendar year in Judaism, which, let's not forget, have a lot to do with agriculture and harvest and sowing seeds and how mankind should be grateful to God for the bounty of the earth. Three, being a pastor also allows one to cultivate this concept in Hebrew of hit bodedut, or meditative isolation, which is a key accompaniment to prayer and an elevated spiritual life, according to these three men. And finally, most practically, when I teach, I always like to return to practical concerns, lest my students get carried away with intellectually sophisticated and abstruse concepts. 
Practically speaking, cities were quite dangerous for Jews in the wake of the forced conversions and violent persecutions of 1391. There was still a considerable urban population in the Spanish kingdoms in the century between the persecutions of 1391 and the expulsion of 1492. However, there was a considerable landed presence in the countryside and in exurbs of Spanish and Portuguese cities. And the belief that Saba and Arama and Ravenel had was that life in the country was safer physically and politically and economically than a life in the city, which had led in recent memory to violent persecutions and struggles. What were the different meanings attributed by the commentators you treat in this book to agriculture? On the one hand, agriculture was seen by these commentators as important, essential, a key element of not only economic life, but spiritual life. And what comes to mind is the third and pivotal chapter of my book, which I devote to the sabbatical and jubilee, which for Abraham Saba, the Kabbalist I mentioned earlier, is the root and foundation, his words in my translation, of the entire Torah. So on the one hand, agriculture is this paradigmatic Jewish expression without which a Jew cannot be fully pious and fully in sync with scriptural tradition and rabbinic expression of that tradition. On the other hand, if we think back to Cain and Abel, Cain, as the first agriculturalist, is excoriated by these writers. And he's excoriated because, as they see it, agriculture leads to accumulation. Accumulation leads to hoarding. Hoarding leads to disparities in wealth between rich and poor and the concomitant exploitation of the poor by the hands of the rich. So it's a complicated and tense thing, Ari. On the one hand, they want to exonerate and celebrate agriculture as pure, as away from cities, as a way of getting closer to God. On the other hand, a mythologically essential figure in the Bible, Cain, is a murderer and ultimately creates the sociological and socioeconomic conditions that enable exploitation of the poor and the very kinds of economic disparities that the Torah itself resists and wants to eradicate by enforcing a redistribution of wealth in the commandments regarding the sabbatical and jubilee. So in sum, it's a complicated legacy. What does the title of your book mean? Why did you call your book, The Land is Mine? In Leviticus, <clears throat> when the laws of the sabbatical and jubilee are stated and described, and God speaking through Moses, according to tradition, is explaining the necessity of honoring the sabbatical and the jubilee and all that that entails, the cessation from agricultural labor, manumission of slaves, and the canceling of debt in the case of the Jubilee year, God reminds the Israelites listening or reading eventually that the land is not theirs. And he says, Kili Haaretz, the land is mine. So ultimately, true ownership of the land is not in the hands of humans, whether Israelite or not, but is in the hands of God. And I chose this title as the, I chose this phrase as the title for my book, really for two reasons. One, to signal the importance of that expression and ideology in the book of Leviticus. And two, to hopefully pique reader curiosity in the very same sorts of struggles that Saba and Abravanel and Arama witnessed amongst Spanish and Portuguese landowners and shepherds. So what I haven't talked about yet, Ari, which I, I want to just discuss very, very briefly here because it's relevant to the title, is how these commentators described and discussed Cain and Abel and other biblical stories as well as ciphers and keys to understanding trends and currents in their lifetime. And one of those key trends, to paraphrase the title of a famous book by Bill Cronin, an American historian, is changes in the landscape. And at the beginning of the 15th century, to simplify and edit a lot of very good and careful history of the medieval uh, Spanish and Portuguese kingdoms, at the beginning of the 15th century, 
Spain was essentially a net exporter. And I say Spain is shorthand for all the Spanish kingdoms. There was no formal country until significantly later in time. Spain was a net exporter of grain. And by the beginning of the 16th century, they had to import grain. And one of the most important reasons for this is that a lot of arable land, land used to sow and harvest subsistence crops, had been converted into pasture, mostly in order to encourage and facilitate the spread of massive herds of goat and especially sheep, who were valuable not for their mutton meat, but for their wool, which fetched very high prices on an international market. So in short, I chose the phrase to echo the theological significance of God being the true possessor of the land, and also to signal the incredible transformations in the Iberian landscape that these figures I write about were living through. And those transformations related very carefully to biblical episodes that these three figures wrote about extensively. What do the thinkers examined here say about greed? How do they understand concepts such as avarice, excess, materialism, luxury, and waste? What do they say about such topics? In short, they think that those are the ruin of humankind. And just as Saba said that the laws of sabbatical and jubilee are the root and foundation of the entire Torah, meaning not just the Pentateuch, but the entire Jewish tradition, so too do they think that greed was the inverse of what sabbatical and jubilee were meant to inculcate in Jewish law, tradition, and thought. So an easy way to discuss this is to think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which in Christian exegesis has a lot to do with so perceived sexual improprieties and deviance. But in the Jewish tradition, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, Ari, the story is much more to do with lack of hospitality than it does with any uh, purported sexual immorality. And that is an axiom in traditional Jewish exegesis. It is taken considerably farther by Saba and Arama and Abravanel, who remind their readers and listeners too, because let's not forget that Saba and Arama both worked intermittently as pulpit rabbis and preachers who had to make these stories come alive orally to their parishioners. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities in the Valley of Shinar, an extremely fertile agricultural zone. And because that zone was so fertile, this led, back to my conversation earlier with you about agriculture, it led to the accumulation of surplus crops. And with the accumulation of surplus crops came wealth, and with wealth came social disparities. So the sin that those cities commit has to do with their lack of hospitality, which is predicated on their greed and not wanting to share any of their resources. Because they say in the imaginative additions to scriptural dialogue produced by Saba and Arama and Abravanel, they say, we don't want to host people here because if they spend a few nights here, they will see that this land is rich and fecund and resembles the Garden of Eden. And if they stay, we will not possess the land as definitively as we do now, and they will have to come here and threaten us. So I could say a lot more about this, but I think that's sufficient for now. Greed is the antonym of holiness for these writers and is a key epistemological lens through which they dichotomize human society. Can you describe the controversy which occurred in 1504 among Jews in Ottoman Safed regarding the Shemitah year? What transpired? Why is it a noble, a notable episode? What does it teach us about the legacy of Jewish refugees from the Spanish Inquisition? Sure, thanks for that, Ari. One quick cl clarification. They're not refugees from the Spanish Inquisition, per se. They're refugees from Spain, and they're refugees from the Edict of Expulsion that was promulgated in the summer of 1492. The Inquisition, let's not forget, officially at least targets only so-called new Christians or conversos. It doesn't officially target Jews, uh, certainly not in this immediate period following the expulsion. 
Be that as it may, in the epilogue of my book, I discuss a an episode in Ottoman Palestine in 1504, where a group of rabbis have to address the topic of the way to properly observe an upcoming sabbatical. And there's a paper trail here where they essentially are fretful about how complete observance of the detailed laws of the sabbatical would threaten the economic livelihood of the Jewish communities in those areas. Because it's not as though Jews weren't living in the areas governed by biblical law pertinent only to the biblical land of Israel before 1492. There were. But according to the writings of Spanish and Portuguese rabbis in places like Hebron and Jerusalem and elsewhere in Ottoman Palestine, following 1492, those autochthonous Jewish communities were not particularly punctilious about their observance of Jewish law in general and about their observance of the sabbatical and jubilee laws in particular. So just the fact that they're asking these questions to me is significant. And it is further significant because their claim that if we were to observe these laws thoroughly, it would mean the economic ruin of many people means to me, to a historian interested in Jewish landed distribution, it means that a lot of Jews are working the land and are engaged deeply with agricultural and pastoral processes. And for we modern urban and suburban dwellers, you're speaking to me from Toronto, Ari, and I'm in Columbia, South Carolina, a small city, but still a city. It can be easy to forget that the pre-modern Jewish experience, in some places at least, was characterized as much by farming and the kinds of manual trades that are intimately connected to the land as it was to more... Um, abstract and intellectual pursuits that are not as closely tied to the land. So that's in short why I think that epilogue is key. It signals the enduring importance of at least thinking about the sabbatical and jubilee laws by Spanish and Portuguese exiles. And it also signals the incredibly significant landed distribution of those communities in Ottoman Palestine in the generation following the expulsion. To what degree, if at all, did the thinkers examined in this book think of the Spanish Inquisition as a quote-unquote divine punishment? What might its victims have been punished for? There is a trend in the authors I study to assert um, divine vengeance and divine punishment for Jewish disobedience and Jewish immorality particularly around the topic of greed and cupidity. And again, I just I don't mean to be quibblesome. I just wanted to, to clarify once again that it's not so much the Inquisition, which was set up to target so-called crypto-Jews, as it was the edict of expulsion itself and the tremendous social and economic and demographic changes wrought by a single stroke of a pen in 1492. So... This is not something the book delves into deeply. It is mentioned a few times, and your listeners may be curious to know that some of these writers, including the big, so-called big three of my book, did consider divine punishment as one explanation for what befell the Jews in this period. How do Ferdinand and Isabella figure into your book and research? Where do they appear? They appear... A couple of times, and most notably, and perhaps most obviously, as the authors of the Edict of Expulsion and those responsible ultimately for enforcing it. And one thing that your listeners might be curious to know is that Abravanel, who's easily the most famous of the three figures I'm discussing today, worked as a financial advisor to Ferdinand and Isabella, and he had ascended to inarguably the most powerful position an Iberian Jew could have in this period. And in spite of his closeness to the king and especially the queen, scholars far more learned than I have uh, argued and demonstrated that Isabella really wore the pants, as so to speak, in that relationship. Um, Ferdinand was much less politically and economically savvy than she was. 
in spite of Abravanel's closeness to her, he was powerless to um, to cancel the decree or even modify or commute its punishments. So they appear as evil figures. Um, once or twice, I have seen Spanish and Portuguese Jewish writers of this period talk about them as instruments of God's wrath. But the focus overwhelmingly in this book is on the biblical stories themselves and how they were interpreted. And there's less attention paid by these authors to modern Spanish political developments and more to the kinds of ecological transformations I signaled earlier, namely the shift from arable to pasture and the devastating effects that wrought on the Spanish landscape and on Spanish ideas about what kinds of human occupations and pursuits are most notable and worth. What, if anything, is uniquely, quote unquote, Jewish or uniquely Judaic about the economic ethics that the thinkers present here? Do they say anything fundamentally different than Christian and Muslim perspectives on economics? I have not seen in the Christian commentaries and texts that I have read around the period I'm studying that resembles the intense antipathy towards cities and the, and the related celebration of rural life that I saw in these Jewish commentaries. Friends and colleagues who work on pre-modern Islam have suggested to me that were I to know Arabic or work with someone who did, there would be very intriguing parallels to draw between Jewish thought in Hebrew and Muslim thought in Arabic that celebrates rural life and denigrates urban life. So to come right to the point, Ari, I think what makes this set of Jewish commentaries and writings so distinctive is the vehemence of their at least purported distrust of cities and their related celebration of rural places. Now, in case some of your readers are, are, are scrunching their eyebrows and wondering, what is Burns talking about? And what are these three pre-modern writers talking about? Jews need cities in order to have the kinds of communities that enable the proper fulfillment of Jewish law. To your listeners, I would say, absolutely. They need mikvaot, ritual baths. They need kosher slaughterers. They need synagogues. And they need other community functions that cannot take place or it can take place with only greater difficulty in extremely isolated settlements. That's absolutely true. And what your listeners who are critically thinking um, might already be onto is that for these three guys, for Abravanel and Saba and Arama, they're trapped between, on the one hand, a perfectly lucid and understandable critique of modern society, and on the other hand, a dream fantasy. Abravanel in Nachalata Vote, his commentary on the ethics of the father that I mentioned earlier, writes as if he actually wanted Jews to escape cities and go abandon their jobs and their lives and become pastors. Again, I don't mean pulpit rabbis, I mean actual pastors. But it's very clear to me that he didn't want them to do that. And it's very clear to me because I've read hundreds and hundreds of pages of Abravanel and a lot of his colleagues. And more to the point, his readers and listeners didn't take those suggestions seriously. They understood what Abravanel was saying as a warning about the evils of an urbanized and industrializing society. And they understood what he was saying as a call to return to some of the ethics that King Solomon and King David and Moses and other biblical figures and writers articulated through the metaphors and through the stories of land and agriculture and pastoralism and related issues. How do the thinkers you examine here study, engage with, and reinterpret Midrash? What role do Midrashim play in their exegesis? A pretty fundamental one. I, on a personal note, have been studying Midrash Rabbah for months now. And the more I study it with um, my teacher and beloved mentor, Rabbi Dr. Saul Cohen, the more I see how central Midrash and Midrashic thought is to the exegesis of these figures. So 
I don't have an example to hand, Ari, of a late antique midrash that gets reworked and expanded necessarily, but I can say that some of the framing, for example, uh, of Cain as farmer and hoarder and Abel as pastor and therefore as somebody who lives only with what he needs and is able to get milk from his animals and use their fur and uh, uh, hides as clothing. Some of those dichotomizing generalizations are found in Midrash as well. And it's clear to me that these figures, and, and by the way, the book is not only based on the writings of these three men. Um, I study the works of Isaac Caro, a relative of the famous um, jurist who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, the Jewish Code of Law in the 16th century. Uh, there are several others as well. I don't want to belabor your listeners with a list of names. that They can easily be found in my book or in writings around it. They all knew Midrash very, very well. And much like a, if I may, much like a modern um, R&B artist uses samples to create a new beat and a new hook, so too did uh, these Sephardic intellectuals remix and resample midrash and other forms of Jewish exegesis in order to articulate their ideas. How do the thinkers you examine here understand exile? Can you comment on the personal experiences of exile that the specific authors you examine here lived through? Sure. One thing I, I'll start with a little defense. One thing that this book does not set out to do is add to the already considerable literature about the trauma of exile. And I wanted to avoid that, not because I'm insensitive to it, nor because I think it's unimportant, but because I wanted this book, The Land is Mine, to add to our understanding of the centrality of land and landed issues and ecology and agriculture and pastoralism rather than the concept of exile and the forced emigration um, that they experienced in their lifetimes. Still, if we return for a minute to Abravanel's gloss in Nachalata Vote on a proverb that urges readers and listeners to go off and live by themselves as herders, not hoarders, mind you, but herders, they, the readers, the listeners to your podcast might be curious to know that Abravanel wrote those lines after the expulsion, and he wrote them on the island of Corfu, where he and several, more than several, he and many other Iberian exiles had gone to live temporarily in something essentially re resembling a refugee camp, Ari. And he prefaces, Abravanel does, he prefaces this remark by saying, I hoped that my brethren would have taken advantage of this moment to reflect on their deeds and examine their transgressions and pray and devote themselves to fervent study and divine service. But instead, what they're doing is lounging around playing games of chance. So it's undeniable to me that Abravanel's return to ancient guidelines for the ideal life were motivated by his own experience of exile and deracination from his homeland. Some of your readers, excuse me, listeners, surely know that the Jews had been in Iberia for almost 1400 years by the time of the expulsion, maybe even 1500 years. So it's not as though the Jews were recent arrivals in Spain and Portugal. They've been there for a very long time. So being forced to leave was undeniably traumatic. Saba and Arama also had to flee, um, first to Portugal and eventually to North Africa, in the case of Saba. And in Arama's case, he boarded a ship for southern Italy and ended up in Naples, where he lived for only two years before he dies in 1494, where he finishes writing a lot of his famous work, Akedat Yitzchak. So in short, the book tries to argue less for the theological significance of exile or its traumatic psychological effects 
but rather for how the experience of these three men, especially related to their return to ancient models of how to live a good life. To what degree should the commentators that you examine here be considered, quote unquote, philosophers? What were the interconnections between the Bible commentaries you examine here and debates in Jewish, Islamic, and or Christian philosophy going on in the centuries leading up to the Inquisition? What is your book's contribution to Jewish thought and philosophy? Why are biblical commentaries understudied in the study of Jewish thought and philosophy? Great question. To take the first part of it first, um, to what extent can they, if I remember your phrasing correctly, Ari, to what extent that can they be considered philosophers? To a great extent. And I don't mean to be um, pedantic about this or to fetishize etymologies, but if we remember that a philosopher is ultimately a lover or a pursuer of wisdom, then that is undeniably what all of these people are up to. Two of them, Arama and Abravanel, either write specific works dedicated to solving traditional problems in medieval Jewish and Islamic and Christian philosophy. But that's not really my focus in this book. My focus in this book is to consider how they dealt with and analyzed timeless ideas about what kinds of lives should people live? Where should they live? How should they live on the land? What should they do as stewards of the land in order to live morally and ethically upright lives? To that point, one of the sources that I draw readers' attention to for men like Arama and Saba and Abravanel is a trend in ancient Greek and Roman writing about golden ages. And there are many Greek and Roman writers who have a lot to say about a mythological golden age and the degree to which it's ever possible to return to it. And one of the writers that especially Abravanel and Arama are most fond of is Seneca, the first century philosopher, often known as a Stoic. They're less interested in his Stoicism and more interested in several of his epistles to Lucilius, in which he talks about a mythological golden age where people lived off the land. They lived modestly. They didn't hoard. They didn't accumulate. They didn't pursue after luxuries or what, or what Seneca calls superfluities, super vacua. And Abravanel has a great translation of that as motarot, which your Hebrew uh, speakers or readers uh, in the audience will certainly recognize etymologically as related to superfluities. So in the sense that these men who are the, the stars of this book are engaging age-old questions about how to live. Um, if you think about the popular writer Sarah Blackwell's book, How to Live, which is about Michel de Montaigne um, and presents some of Montaigne's ideas in a very accessible way, those are the kinds of topics that I seized on in the commentaries of Arama and Saba Nabravanel. To get to your the final part of your question, Ari, last but not least, what does this contribute to Jewish thought? Well, throughout my career, in both my uh, first major scholarly book and in this one as well, I have a mission, which is to show that Jewish writers and intellectuals are not only interested in intramural concerns in Jewish law and thought and um, exegesis, but are also participants in and contributors to larger currents in uh, especially European Jewish thought uh, and European thought in general. In my first book, I studied Jewish and Catholic physicians and the way they approach the Bible, not only as a sacred text, but as a scientific one as well. And note that I said Jewish and Catholic physicians, because part of the point of that first book um, was to show that they are doing the same thing, or at least very similar things, even though most of the Jewish writers that I study in that book were working in Hebrew, and a lot of the Catholic Italian scholars and doctors I studied were writing in both Latin and Italian. Here, too, I wanted to present Abrama and Saba and Abravanel as figures who, even though they might have written almost exclusively for Jews, given that they wrote in um, very elusive and elegant biblical and rabbinic Hebrew, they were interested in and contributing to debates about fundamental issues that any 
thinking, sensitive person, arguably, has to consider. How did you personally grow during the process of studying the texts that you examine here? What did the specific stories and their interpretation mean to you personally? How did your own thinking evolve during your research and reflection process? Wow, what a wonderful and thoughtful question, Ari. Um, a lot. <laughs> I'll start with something a little bit more scholarly, and then I will pivot to the personal. In terms of scholarly maturity, um, I grew a lot in two ways. One, I, I had to address, and I hope ultimately satisfy, readers and reviewers and critics of the pre-publication manuscript who were concerned that I hadn't shown clearly enough that these writers and intellectuals were really involved with and aware of and participants in the kinds of ecological transformations and demographic shifts that I argue for in this book. And that meant reading much more deeply in Spanish and Portuguese economic and demographic history, which is not really my training and not really my specialty, but made me very grateful for and humble in the face of scores of mostly Spanish and Portuguese historians who had done very thorough archival research about the Jews and not about the Jews. And I plundered their work with, of course, due acknowledgement and citation to better understand the landed nature of late medieval Jewry. And so that was a growth process for me. One more scholarly point of growth. Um, in reading Saba and Arama and Abravanel so carefully, carefully, I also developed more humility about how thoroughly they had internalized biblical and rabbinic traditions and language to the point where I, as someone who did not have a traditional Jewish education and had to essentially acquire one as a late adolescent, and it's still a process for me to acquire some of these lexical and uh, textual tools, it was um, a tremendous opportunity for me to grow into their language and their modes of thought. And I went over the passages that I translate and present in this book literally dozens of times. And our culture is one that prioritizes speed and uh, the presentation of what um, Italians of this period would call sprezzatura or presumed effortless mastery. And good scholarship is not effortless. It's very effortful. Moving to the personal, Ari, and I think that you might have read some of my non-academic pieces about experiences that I've had on farms and in survivalist gatherings and on ranches. I have had experiences in all of those venues. And without exception, all of those experiences in my past sensitized me to the kinds of issues these three writers were dealing with. And even though Abravanel might have never castrated a calf or branded one or done any of the things that he writes about suggesting people do, I have done both of those things, by the way, I still know that he knew what it smelled like to be around a branding iron. And he knew what it sounded like to hear a young calf shriek when it was um, castrated. And... At the onset of the pandemic, my wife and I moved to a very small town in a valley in north central Washington state, where we were very warmly received by my sister and brother-in-law and their family who live in a 400-person town. And by that point, a first draft of my book was finished, but I had to go over all of the sources again and edit and add sections to the book. And so as I was living in relative isolation, during an extremely challenging time for everybody in the in the world, I got to live much closer to the rhythms of the natural world and engage with people who were farming and ranching all the time. And that, the I'm not sure whether the book facilitated my integration into those activities or whether my passion for some forms of manual labor and some forms of rural life fanned the passion for this kind of research. I suspect it works in both directions. But that is the the, the key personal element and anecdote uh, behind the interest in this material and my work um, on it in these recent years. 
how, how, if at all, were the writings of Abarbanel, Saba, and Arama interpreted and read after their deaths? How did later generations of Jews engage with their perspectives? It's hard to take that question in block because they're three such different figures. So I'll take them in turn. Of the three, Saba has probably received the least attention. And his major commentary on the Pentateuch, Tzoror Hamor, um, a bundle full of myrrh, which is a scriptural phrase, was printed only in the 19th century. And as far as I can tell, studied only episodically. The um, Israeli scholar Abraham Gross has written very competently and thoughtfully about Abraham Saba, and other people have too, but there's really not a lot, Ari. And even though in Eastern European and possibly in Ottoman Jewish life in the 19th and early 20th century, Saba was known and read, but not particularly well and not particularly carefully, as far as I can tell. Arama's Akedat Yitzchak is a much better known work. And one of the reasons why it's better known is that it's sermonic, by which I mean Arama it presents his Bible commentary not as a verse-by-verse -verse gloss, as, say, Abraham ibn Ezra or Rashi does. He presents his studies of scripture as um, sha'arim, as gates or portals, as I call them in the book. And for the timeless need that Jewish rabbis and preachers have to acquire material for Sabbath preaching and, and holiday sermons, um, Arama had served, had served them well for hundreds of years. That said, and anybody who's tried to read a Rama knows exactly what I mean, his writing is very difficult. There's um, a very promising graduate student at the University of Chicago right now doing a dissertation on Akedat Yitzchak, and I, I look forward to her work very much. It is very difficult to read a Rama. There's a lot of dense philosophical language. The syntax and the diction are quite forced and ornate, almost Baroque. And so he hasn't really been treated much by scholars, even though he has been read by preachers. And there's excerpts of the Akedat Yitzchak in very good English by Mark Saperstein in his anthology of Jewish preachers from 1200 to 1800. Finally, a Bravanel or a Barbanel, as you like. He's by far the best known. He's still not a particularly easy writer to read. And one of the reasons why he's difficult is his prolixity. He goes on and on and on. And if your readers are more, excuse me again, if your listeners are more familiar with a Bravanel, uh, with Rashi, excuse me, than a Bravanel, a Bravanel is 10 times more verbose than Rashi is. Finally, on a scholarly note, I don't see the primary contribution of this book as any new per um, interpretation of Abravanel or Saba or Arama per se. Cedric Cohen Scali, um, a French Israeli writer and scholar of terrific ability, published a new biography of Abravanel in the last year or two that's out now in English and in Hebrew. He wrote it in Hebrew and it was translated into English. Uh, Cohen Scali very well um, overturned some of Benjamin Netanyahu's earlier findings about Abravanel. And so I don't see my contribution primarily as biographical. I think that what I, one of the things I try to do in this book that hasn't yet come up in our discussion, Ari, is to treat Abravanel and Saba and Arama as a unit, as a triad, as it were, of writers who, though studied individually, haven't really been taken as a collective expression of Iberian Jewish thought in the generation of the expulsion on these subjects of greed and subsistence on the one hand, or farming and pastoralism on the other. And in general, once again, to plug the book uh, yet again, on the subject of ecology and environment and what traditional Jewish ethics are in terms of those topics. How did the different thinkers you examine here interpret the story of Adam and Eve? We can certainly go through um, one or several of those stories if you want. Um, Adam and Eve was interesting and important to these writers because of the story of the Garden of Eden and the expulsion from it. And they are interested much less in um, Eve's sin or Adam's sin following the Zohar. Many um, late medieval Jewish writers 
preferred to think of the sin not as Eve's, but as Adam's, because of course, as the Zohar brilliantly points out, God doesn't address Eve, God addresses Adam. So whatever they, whatever Eve did wasn't really her fault. They were interested in the Garden of Eden story because of its language about the salubrious nature of that place. In other words, they're less interested in it as a metaphysical location and more interested in it as a physical location. And as Abravanel and Saba and Arama, I mean, I can really prove that Abravanel was reading literature from the New World. I can only suspect that Arama and Saba were. They read Columbus's letters from Hispaniola and other Caribbean islands as evidence that the Garden of Eden exists on the earth and not only as a metaphysical concept. So the story of the Garden of Eden is a reminder that, that the garden existed and may still exist and is a reminder that living in nature, out of cities, and contenting yourself with produce of the land is really human aspiration or should be rather than the um, cupidinous and acquisitive nature of modern urban society as they saw it. Are Sodom and the king of Sodom understood by the thinkers that you examine here? Sure. Um, I talked about that a bit earlier, but just to circle back to it, they are represented by the figures here as exemplars of a lack of hospitality and a lack of hospitality that is specifically connected to the agricultural fertility of the place where they lived. Again, the, the Valley of Shinar. Would you be open to commenting on the Cain and Abel story in more detail as it comes up? I think we covered it earlier in terms of the big themes. And I, as an enticement to your listeners, I would only mention that it comes up very early in the book, in the first two chapters. And so this really famous and well-known biblical episode um, is so crucial to these commentators and is also appropriately placed very early in my book. Okay, no problem. You end your book with the following words. If expropriation of fields and vineyards was a worse crime than forced labor, after all, the paradigmatic Jewish expression experience of oppression Abravanel and his generation must have placed enormous importance on the land and how people related to it. What do you mean by this insight? Can you elaborate? Why did you end the book with these specific words? Sure. Just to give your listeners a little bit of context, I'm talking there about Abravanel's discussion of uh, King Ahab seizing uh, Naboth's vineyard in uh, 1 Kings 21. And he, yeah, just to go back to that uh, passage, Abravanel asks, if the king were entitled to take the property of any one of his people, why did not Ahab simply take the vineyard of uh, Naboth? And his answer, Abravanel's, I'm going to take the liberty of reading it, it's short. Um, he says, Abravanel does, why did he have to go to the length of slanderously accusing him of cursing the king and then executing him in order to be able to appropriate it if the king was entitled by law to take any field and vineyard he coveted? End quotation. The answer was that Ahab was powerless before laws and customs governing the land. So again, back to the phrase that, or the sentence that you read, Ari, um, if expropriation of land was worse than the crime of, for, of forced labor, Abravanel must have placed um, considerable importance on it. Again, when I'm talking about forced, forced labor, I'm of course thinking about the Israelite experience as slaves in Egypt, which is soon to be uh, recounted by many Jews during their uh, Passover celebrations. And so I chose this episode, um, this gloss of Abravanel's to end the book with, just to kind of touch on how seriously land and responsibility to land was for Abravanel. If it was a bigger deal, in short, even than forced labor, it must have been tremendously important for Abravanel and his generation. You write as follows on page three. To the protagonists of this book, cities were at best dangerous places from which they and their co-religious had been expelled. 
At worst, they were morally repugnant dens of iniquity. This perspective developed in the context of the Iberian cities they knew and in which they lived. Saragossa, Tarragona, Seville, Lisbon, and Toledo. And it covered the way they saw biblical conurbations from Sodom to Babylon to Nineveh. It was reinforced by their tumultuous passage to Ottoman and Italian locations where they initially were made to suffer, Naples, Corfu, and Salonica. We tend to think of Jews in both the modern and pre-modern worlds as paradigmatic cosmopolitans, urbane, urban, deracinated from the soil. There is some truth to this claim, but some of the most civilized pre-modern Jews in the literal etymological sense of that word, civis or townsmen, extolled the lives of rural farmers and especially shepherds. For these prolific writers and social commentators, cities were no places of grace. Although we've discussed this theme earlier on in different ways, do you feel comfortable expounding upon this passage for us? Sure. There's a lot there, Ari, and I, I worry that your listeners are already wearied by this point in our conversation. But maybe what I'll do, because I've already talked, I think, a bit about cities, and I already highlighted the incredible duration of Iberian Jewish life, as well as the financial and political influence and success of Iberian Jews. Maybe I'll just kind of wrap up with a little gloss on that phrase, no place of grace. Sure. That is a nod to a book by the American historian um, Jackson Lears, who wrote a book about anti-modernism in the United States of America between 1880 and 1890. Excuse me, between 1880 and 1920. It's not, not just a decade, it's a generation, 40 years. And what Jackson Lears argues in this book is that as life was getting increasingly mechanized and automated in as a result of the second industrial revolution in America's Gilded Age, wealthy and privileged people tended to weary and um, tire of how easy life had become and how unanimated their existences were. And he describes in a series of extremely colorful and anecdotally rich chapters, how one after another, these men and women in America threw themselves into a passion for medieval martial practices or back to the land movements or other related kind of escapist fantasies. And what Jackson Lears shows brilliantly in this book is that that turn to the past for sucker and for presumed stimulating experiences that were no longer easily available to hyper-modernized, industrialized men and women in the major cities of the northeastern United States, ultimately ended up inculcating and encouraging what he calls a therapeutic ethos. So rather than actually going back to the land and growing their own vegetables and raising goats, they invested in country estates where they would take maids and butlers and build massive estates where they would go on the weekends to rest and rejuvenate and then return to the cities ready to earn more money and continue along the path that had made them miserable in the first place. And what Lears is so good at, and he's very deeply immersed in modern thought and like modern psychoanalytic thought and in modern political thought, is understanding the subtle nature of the antipathy to modernity on the one hand and the unrealistic nature of any desire to escape it by modern people. So what part of what my book deals with is the degree to which what these rabbis and exegetes said was meaningful practical advice and the extent to which it was romanticization. And that's a tension and an undercurrent running underneath the entire book that I hope your listeners, if they are curious to go on and read the book, um, think about not only in the context of the experience of late medieval Iberian Jews, but also in terms of our experience as late moderns living in the world we call home. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about your current research and what you are working on now. Sure, I actually have a couple of projects underway right now. So I'll just 
kind of mention them very uh, briefly. One is a, a piece on rural Jewish medical practice, uh, especially in 16th century Italy. And I have some letters by a young early 16th century Jewish physician who's sent out into the countryside to practice medicine and writes um, illuminating uh, and sometimes humorous and sad letters to his fiancee and to his father and to his former teacher about what it's like to be practicing rural medicine. And part of the point of that study is to pay more attention to this amazing corpus of letters that the very hardworking and accomplished Israeli scholar um, uh, Yaakov Voxenboim has published. And I use several unpublished letters as well. And also to pay more attention to the practice of rural medicine. Another project that I'm working on right now has to do with some of the more Kabbalistic and occult scientific dimensions of agricultural thought and botanical study in Jewish life in the same period. I'm taking the time frame a little bit forward into the 17th century. But in short, Ari, as we discussed earlier, in terms of environmentalism and environmental ethics, I think it's really important that we who are interested in the history of the Jews understand how Kabbalistic thought creates um, connections between people and land and humans and animals and humans and plants differently than uh, what modern scholars call scientific rationalism. So those are two, two projects that I am busy with at the moment. Thank you for your time. I could not be more appreciative for all your generous answers and the wisdom you shared with us in the course of our conversation today. It was a genuine blessing to talk to you and learn from you. It was a real pleasure to be here, Ari. Thank you so much for your careful reading of my book and all of these thoughtful questions and for the invitation to appear on your podcast. Thank you. It was my honor and my privilege. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Andrew Burns. He is Associate Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. We have been discussing his book, The Land is Mine, Sephardi Jews and Bible Commentary in the Renaissance, published in Philadelphia by University of Pennsylvania Press 2022. Thank you.